Hello and welcome to the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. How will the second Trump impeachment trial affect the future of impeachment as a constitutional tool? Doug Becker explores. I'm Doug Becker. Former President Donald Trump has made history by becoming the first president ever impeached twice. He also has made history by having his trial take place after he has left office. On today's show, we discuss the constitutionality of the second impeachment trial, the legal arguments advanced by both the House impeachment managers and the former president's legal team, and the future of impeachment as a political tool following this trial. Our guests are Frank Bowman, Floyd R. Gibson, Missouri, endowed professor of law at the University of Missouri School of Law. He is the author of High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump. He also writes the blog, Impeachable Offenses. And Eric M. Friedman, distinguished professor of constitutional rights at Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. He is the author of Habeas Corpus, Rethinking the Great Writ of Liberty and Making Habeas Work a Legal History. Professor Bowman, the first question I have is, Republicans have advanced an argument that this trial is unconstitutional because it's being held after the president has left office. Now, I know the Senate has voted on this already, you know, making a legal and political statement, but could you evaluate for us the argument that the Republicans have a point? I don't think so. The first thing to do when we talk about impeachment is to recognize one important thing, which is unlike a lot of other areas of constitutional law, um, there are few, if any, absolute certainties in terms of constitutional law, because unlike most other areas of constitutional law, it's not an area where you can have any definitive adjudication by the courts on any but really the most peripheral kinds of considerations. So um, when people who study and think about impeachment talk about something as being settled, I mean, we know that we're, we really don't mean that in, because no Congress can bind any subsequent Congress on most of these points. Uh, and it's really Congress that gets to decide. Now, I suppose the question of uh, you know, post office um, jurisdiction by the Senate might be uh, adjudicable by the Supreme Court, but I think it's the kind of thing that they'd be deeply unlikely to fiddle with. Uh, I think if the Senate says that it has jurisdiction, I think that's pretty much the end of the question for all practical purposes. But assuming that the, the Senate, like the courts, has the power to make some decisions about what the Constitution means and, and what, what they're supposed to do under it, that means we've got to argue this question. And this question about whether or not you can uh, have a trial after somebody's out of office is at least debatable. It's not like the claim that is being made by Mr. Trump's defenders is completely insane. It's unlike, for example, I mean, to take a comparison that I like to use, in the first Trump trial, it was repeated by Trump's defenders that, well, in order for there to be a high, high crime or misdemeanor, the president's behavior must be an indictable crime. Well, nonsense. I mean, at least if we take the overwhelming consensus of people who thought and talked about this for a couple hundred years, no, it doesn't. But on the other hand, the point was raised, notably by Alan Dershowitz, 
And a number of senators seized on that, that claim and made it the ostensible basis for their vote to acquit Mr. Trump. So in the impeachment area, almost anything can be argued because there's no real tribunal to say now and forevermore, this is so and that is not. So with that long introduction, let me say that while you can make the argument that the Senate doesn't have jurisdiction now, I, don't, I think it's a bad argument. It's a bad argument because it rests uh, on a kind of tendentious, I think, kind of textual claim that because the penalties for impeachment are limited to essentially mandatory removal and optional disqualification, that anybody who can't be removed at the time of his conviction, therefore can't be tried in the first instance. And I just don't think that's a very convincing argument on its face. And moreover, I think it doesn't really comply with uh, the framers' view about what this whole enterprise was for. That is to say impeachment. They, they conceived of it as a means of dealing primarily with dangerous presidents. And one of the kinds of presidents or kinds of people they were most concerned about were people they called demagogues. That is politicians, aspiring politicians who would aspire directly to the passions and prejudices of the people and thereby you know, bring themselves into power and once in power essentially transform themselves into autocrats or dictators. They, they believe based on their study of the classical world and earlier republics that people like this were a special and unique danger to republics. And I think that that's one of the principal reasons why they included the disqualification remedy, because they recognize that people like this, their danger is not eliminated simply by removing them from office, because this power of appealing directly to the passions of the people remains. And uh, I think there are a few occasions when you can sort of look at the, at the modern world and say, dang, the framers anticipated this problem perfectly. And I think we are in one of those moments in the sense that Donald Trump is the living, breathing embodiment of what they were worried about when they were thinking about impeachment. He's the guy. It took 230 years for him to appear, but he's the guy. And so to say that we can't address the sort of personality and the sort of danger that they were concerned about simply by virtue of the fact that he happens to commit his most egregious offense, his offense of essentially attempting to overturn an election and to install himself as an unelected autocrat at the end of his term before the Senate can complete its trial, I think is not a really plausible interpretation of the Constitution, either from, you know, a textual, on a textual basis, on a structural basis, certainly not on the basis of original understanding and certainly not on the basis of any sort of prudential concern about maintaining constitutional order. Professor Friedman, Professor Bowman is raising an issue as sort of an existential question as to what impeachment means. I'd love to get your response to that. Is, is it a legal process? Is it a political process? Or what exactly is impeachment supposed to address? It is, to quote Alexander Hamilton, a process with, which may with peculiar propriety be called political. But what he means by peculiar propriety is not politics in a day-to-day, you know, jousting sense about uh, I disagree with him about the Green New Deal or something, right? What he means is someone who is not worthy of the trust of the people because he has broken through the guardrails that the Constitution provides and therefore 
by a, on rare occasions, by a supermajority, we are going to protect the constitutional structure from this out of control car that's breaking through all the guardrails. Okay. And in that context, everything that Professor Bowen says about why the claim should be rejected uh, makes total sense. And yes, I, you know, as a career constitutional law professor, don't believe much about constitutional judgments that are reached in the heat of combat on the floor of the Senate, as opposed to a lot of people who have actually spent a lot of time studying this and in something that's rather rare in constitutional law, all serious scholars who have actually looked into it are of the same view, which is not usually the fact, but that's how it came about that most recently 177 of us signed the same letter taking the position that yes, an out of office president can be impeached, notwithstanding that we disagree about pretty much everything else uh, that may happen in constitutional law. But there's a reason for all that. First of all, there's the practical reason that Professor Bowman ended with, which is uh, you know what's being popularly called the January exception to impeachment, right? <laughs> which is as long as he misbehaves late enough, then he'll be out of office anyway. But more generally, he can quit just two seconds before conviction, you can resign and then uh, there's nothing you can do. That precise problem, as Professor Bowman alluded to, has been dealt with a couple of times in American history, which is why it comes about that we actually have several precedents for out of office office holders being impeached, including quite early in the history of the Republic when they should know what they were talking about. Furthermore, we happen to know that there was at the time a very highly publicized uh, impeachment trial going on in England, which was dominating the press. And we know that the framers were aware of it because they mentioned it, in which an out of office uh, office holder was being impeached and prosecuted criminally at the same time so that if convicted, they could have confiscated his estate and done all sorts of things to him, which the framers thought was not appropriate for a political process and therefore wrote, aiming like a laser at that precedent, it shall be limited to removal from office, disqualification of any further office, period. But the party uh, impeached can be proceeded against in separate criminal proceedings subject to all the rules of due process. Okay. So given that language against the backdrop of the history that we uh, know came to it and the practicalities and the precedent, you know, as constitutional law questions go, this one has a pretty strong answer, which is why, again, all the academics who wrote about this long before the current events came to the same conclusion and why I am, you know, not about to take my constitutional law from any transient majority of senators, even if the transient majority of senators this time, you know, uh, happened to come out the way I would, that's because, you know, honestly, because they're Democrats, most of them, right? I mean, that's not a basis for long-term enduring uh, decision-making any more than I would take as precedent the kind of absurdistan arguments that uh, Professor Bowman referenced from the first Trump impeachment, which were spurious. Frank Bowman, you cited one specific argument, this is not really about precedent because each individual 
Congress can make these decisions for themselves. But the House impeachment managers are making a precedent inspired argument that this is important to be on the record, that this is behavior that will not be tolerated and there's an expectation of impeachment. Is this trial really about that precedent? Or perhaps also, is it about specifically the individual of Donald Trump, as you cited, that he's possibly going to run again? And so it's about ensuring that this type of behavior can simply not happen again from Donald Trump if he is uh, disqualified as a candidate in 2024. The objective here is to do what the Constitution says we can, which is for the House to determine that a certain defined set of conduct amounts to a high crime or misdemeanor, to pass that allegation over to the Senate, to have the Senate adjudge whether that's true, and if they achieve the requisite majority, disqualify the office holder here, Mr. Trump, from ever serving uh, you know, in federal office again. And that's presumably the point. The only reason we're sort of asking these, these sort of broader existential questions is because we know pragmatically that in our current political environment, almost certainly an insufficient number of Republicans are gonna vote uh, to convict him. And therefore, everybody gets to be asking, well, given that we know that as a matter of practical politics, is there any point in the whole exercise? And if so, what is it? A, a good question. I mean, I think I would begin with the notion that if a president engages in behavior which is as, as clearly violative of the notion of high crime and misdemeanor as Mr. Trump's has been, then that, I think, confers on the Congress, beginning with the House, an obligation to use its constitutional tools to respond. And for better or for worse, uh, virtually the only constitutional tool that the Congress has in such a case is impeachment. Um, so they've started the process that they were given. And I suppose, you know, we shouldn't throw our hands up and say, oh, golly, what's the point? Um, what we should be asking is why isn't, you know, the, the Senate collectively prepared to do the job that the, that the Constitution gave it? That's the question. I mean, we know what the answer is, that they're, the Republicans are enthralled to a particular segment of the Republican base, and therefore their timidity is going to cause them probably to not to do what they should. What purpose does this serve, given that, that hard political reality? I mean, I do think to a certain extent it lays down a marker of a kind. Here's a, a, another thing, and this is, this is something I've been talking with a number of reporters about today and whatnot, which is some of the effect of this is perhaps being lost in, in, in large measure because so many of the Republican senators have decided not to take this seriously, that they're behaving as if it's not serious. They're not showing up, some of them. They're sitting in the back you know, like my former colleague here at the University of Missouri, Josh Hawley, with his feet on the chair in front of him and, you know, pretending like he's, you know, kibitzing in the back of, you know, first-year contracts or something, rather than sitting as, you know, a judge in the most serious sort of decision that any senator can make. And that, I think, is very bad because, largely because it's a symptom of a general lack of seriousness on the part of many of our institutions, but certainly a lack of seriousness on the part of 
you know, the, the institutional Republican Party. But given that we have an institutional Republican Party, segments of which are essentially refusing to take this seriously, should we proceed? I think so. And I think part in part because we need there to be a public forum in which they show us who they are. Are they serious people? Are they not serious people? Too many of them are displaying that they're not serious people. And whether in the end we're going to survive as a constitutional polity if one of the great political parties in a two-party system is no longer composed of serious people remains to be seen. But I think one function that this serves is demonstrating who's who is serious about protection of the Constitution and who is not. Yeah, I would add this. Assuming the Constitution survives another 100 years, another 200 years, it is the fact in all contested constitutional decisions, which happen obviously much more frequently at the Supreme Court level, that at the time the players are alive, everybody understands the politics, everybody knows who Scalia is, everybody knows who Gorsuch is, and, you know, and say uh, forms of, of course he would vote that way, and of course he did it for this reason or that reason or whatever. Over time, those people all die. And the decision of the U.S. Supreme Court is still there and is going to have to make it, you know, on its merits and will be a precedent for better or for worse over time. Again, long after the transient political passions and transient political players are dead. And we are still today citing what happened in impeachments long ago, including things like Okay, they dropped an article of impeachment against Richard Nixon because they thought that should be pursued as a regular crime through the criminal courts, which was about tax evasion. Tax evasion is not an abuse of the power of the of uh, the office of president. You could do it. I could do it. If he's guilty of that, go prosecute him. Right. They dropped one about bombing Cambodia and lying to the American people about it because they thought that's within his outer perimeters of uh, being commander in chief. And okay, well, whatever you may think about why any of those things happened, they are going to be taken seriously at future times, even if some historian says, oh, well, the Republicans did this, Democrats did that, doesn't matter. The precedent stands for the future. And therefore, yes, this has meaning, even if at any particular time it's a whirlwind of, of politics, as all the impeachments have been. The Andrew Johnson presidential impeachment is uh, in clouds of scandal about people being bribed. The Bill Clinton presidential impeachment was one which any number of scholars thought should not have happened. And, you know, you can say Newt Gingrich and the Democrats, because we're all young enough to remember that. Uh, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, 50 years from now, nobody's going to remember Newt Gingrich and the contract on America. So, yes, those things do have a long-term importance, and it is important to lay down those markers and do the best for history, you know, in the interest of a long-term republic in which, God willing, the uh, future will learn lessons from the past. You're listening to Scholar's Circle. We're discussing the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump with Frank Bowman of the University of Missouri and Eric Friedman of Hofstra University. Frank Bowman, you have a response to this? Well, certainly not, not to disagree. I do think that there is some danger, if we can call it that, of creating some unfortunate negative precedents here. If we have a case, as we do, 
against Donald Trump concerning his behavior from November 4th to January 6th, which is plainly as grave a dereliction of the president's constitutional duty as has ever happened in the course of our history. And yet somehow or other, we cannot summon 67 senatorial votes to get rid of or to convict him and then to disqualify him. I mean, that does create an unfortunate precedent for the future, because if something analogous happens in the future, people will say, well, there wasn't serious enough. Somehow or other, it wasn't enough of a high crime or misdemeanor to actually to merit conviction. That is, that is troublesome. It, it is something of a risk in a situation like this. But you can't not do it based on the prediction that will happen, because that simply means that the, the, the political allies of the president have a de facto veto on what is or isn't going to be deemed high crime or misdemeanor. And, and you can't even do it as long as they're willing to, you know, to create this self-fulfilling prophecy that the conviction will not occur. Now, with respect to the particular charges in this case, one concern I do have a little bit is that uh, by choosing to focus very narrowly on the incitement to insurrection in the so-called, what you might call charging paragraph in the, in the art one article, and not focusing as I think they might have on the broader question of Trump's long scheme to overturn the results of a lawful election. That not only of course gives you know, Trump's defenders some, some room to argue in the current case, but also there's an almost a, a kind of an implication that somehow that stuff is less deserving of our attention than the fact that there was a riot. And my view is that the much more grave constitutional offense was the conduct that happened before the people broke in. And indeed, in my view, there would have been impeachable offenses galore were committed if no one had ever so much as set foot inside uh, the Capitol building, because what Trump did was to try to overturn an election. What he did even on, on the 6th was to attempt to coerce or induce his vice president to do something that he had no constitutional power to do, which is to refuse to certify an election. Why did he send the people down there, even if he was just sending them down there not to riot, but to have a protest? Well, it was to induce the Congress to do something that it has no constitutional power to do, which is to refuse to certify the election so that in due course, Donald Trump can remain in power. That's in many ways a much more grave constitutional offense than simply inciting violence. And yet the way we've structured this to some extent, and I understand why it's the emotional core of the claim, but to some extent it, it, it diverts attention away from, from the real essence of what Trump did. And maybe to a certain extent by doing it, kind of, you know, defines deviancy downwards if somehow or other that, that wouldn't be enough. Of course it's enough. Yeah, I, I agree with that. The, the focus on incitement, and this is why I did not sign the letter of 144 scholars, which got many fewer signatures, that the First Amendment claim was frivolous, right? Because it, it's perfectly clear that if Al Sharpton had made that same speech at that same place in front of a Black Lives Matter rally and they had gone and trashed the Capitol, not only could you not have convicted Al Sharpton for that, but the whole civil liberties community would have been spurring to his defense, and rightly so. So that gets messed up with First Amendment, which has nothing to do with this, because Al Sharpton is not president of the United States. It was an abuse of, a total abuse of the powers of the office, exactly as Professor Bowman said. 
not to be litigating court cases, obviously, that, that's fine, but to be bringing extra legal pressures on people not to do their governmental duties. That includes election officials in the states. That includes Vice President Pence. That includes members of Congress. And it is true that the whole frame of the what really is the abuse in just flatly refusing to accept the verdict of the voters, even after it's been upheld by the courts and certified by all the authorities and so on, is really the core of the misconduct in this case. And Professor Bowman's quite right. That would be still the core of the misconduct if the ralliers had gone out and, uh, you know, just yelled and shouted outside the Capitol in an attempt to get Vice President Pence to do something which would be a violation of his constitutional duties. So, yes, that's true. This was not as well written, as well thought out as it might be. But again, you can understand why, partly because of the emotional reaction to just being almost killed in your own offices, and partly to the fact that writing up what we have just said, you know, would have taken more time and effort than was available, partly because there would have been even more messy constitutional situation if they hadn't gotten those articles through while he was still in office, right? In theory, you can bring the entire proceedings against a former official, but, you know, that gives all the more constitutional smokescreens to throw up, and they were eager to do it before Inauguration Day. And so, in classic terms, good enough for government work. So the last question for both of you It appears as though the president is likely to be acquitted, you know, as we're recording this. And so therefore, he would have been impeached twice and acquitted twice. So first, is impeachment as a process as outlined by the Constitution broken? The difficulty of getting convictions, certainly in an age of hyperpartisanship, but Actually, historically, there's only ever been one member of the other political party to vote for removal, at least at this point. That's Mitt Romney in in the last trial. So if it's broken, can it be fixed? If it's not broken, what lessons should we take from this? And then just as a potential explanation, I know the Senate has the option to acquit, but I, I believe they have the option to acquit, but then from a majority vote disqualified. Trump from running from office. They do not have that option. You're shaking, yeah, you're shaking your head. So therefore, you have to, you have to convict by two thirds before you can disqualify. Is what we're okay, both saying. Okay, so that's not an option. That's that's not a suggestion. Can this be fixed? Does it need to be fixed, Mr. Bowman? Well, even though it is true, no president has actually been convicted in an impeachment. I would say that up to the Trump occasions, impeachment either worked pretty well or came close enough to borrow from Professor Friedman for government work. Uh, In Andrew Johnson's case, he escaped conviction by one vote. Lots of complicated reasons why that's so. But in some respects, the impeachment achieved what it was supposed to achieve. That is to say, he was partly perhaps for that reason. Remember, he was just filling out the, the second of Abraham Lincoln's terms. And although he certainly wanted to, Johnson was unsuccessful even in getting on a ticket to run again in 1868. I mean, so essentially the the notion of 
effectively disqualifying him from American political life was in some measure attained. Uh, if you look at Nixon, which is another century before we get a presidential impeachment or anything like it, the Nixon impeachment process worked. We didn't actually impeach him because he didn't have to. And we didn't have to. You just mentioned, and it's often mentioned, that Mitt Romney is the only person in another party, president or senator of another party who's ever voted to, to convict. But if you look at the Nixon precedent, Nixon resigned because the members of his own party, House and Senate, marched down Pennsylvania Avenue and said, Mr. President, A, you're going to get impeached in the House. B, it's going to go to the Senate and you're going to lose. And what's more, some of us are going to vote for that. So hit the road, Jack. So in fact, impeachment worked, worked perfectly, did exactly what it was supposed to do, albeit it was part of a larger investigative process. In the Clinton case, one can argue there shouldn't have been an impeachment at all. But the result, I think, was probably, arguably, the correct one, which is to say he was an immoral weasel. You know, his immorality probably didn't materially affect his ability to be a president. And therefore, the Senate basically concluded eh, no, no high crime and misdemeanor. So I think the first three probably came out either at or very close to where they were supposed to and achieved whatever results they were supposed to. It's only when we come to Mr. Trump's case, there you have, in my view at least, two very clear cases, and certainly the second one is absolutely irrefutable, of impeachable conduct where the job doesn't get done. Now, what do we say about that? I wouldn't say that impeachment is broken so much as I think American politics are broken and more particularly, the Congress is broken. And the fact that the impeachment isn't, isn't serving its assigned function in the Constitution is a symptom of that larger brokenness. So any, any effort to fix impeachment requires fixing our political life. I actually agree with that. Uh, John Adams said, the men of Massachusetts could make any Constitution work. And the flip side of that is that without virtue, it doesn't matter what the Constitution of Russia says, the Constitution of China says, or anything else. And it's true that the fact that the impeachment mechanism plainly in these both of these last two occasions has not done what it should have done. And I'm probably more skeptical also about the Clinton impeachment than Professor Bowman. But we're obviously in a heavy downward spiral. And that heavy downward spiral is in American politics generally. And leaving aside, you know, moral things about virtue, you have unbelievable gerrymandering, which has increased the uh, political benefits to taking an extreme position of one side or the other in your own party, because otherwise it's going to be a primary, right? Moderate. And, and this is an artifact of a lot of what's happened in the voting rights area over the years, and partly the obvious voter suppression stuff and the outrageous decision of the Supreme Court invalidating Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which got much less attention than the Obamacare case, but deserved much more. And, you know, we could begin to put it together. But in fairness, has been happening for many years before that due to an unholy alliance between the Republican Party and minority politicians to create majority minority districts thereby, again, increasing hyperpartisanship because, okay, we'll give you one absolutely Democratic uh, district for two absolutely Republican districts instead of three moderate reasonable districts where somebody's going to have to appeal across party lines. And so I would agree with Professor Bowman that when we fix 
sort of the overlying structure of American politics, then you would expect that, you know, moderate people get elected and will be more conscientious on any particular thing, including impeachment. We've been discussing Donald Trump's second impeachment trial. Our guests today have been Frank Bowman, Floyd R. Gibson, Missouri Endowed Professor of Law at the University of Missouri School of Law. He is the author of High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump, and writes the blog Impeachment Offenses. And Eric M. Friedman, Distinguished Professor of Constitutional Rights at Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. He is the author of Habeas Corpus, Rethinking the Great Writ of Liberty and Making Habeas Work, A Legal History. Thank you all very much.